You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. Uh, in your Bibles this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And once you have that, if you can and you want to, please stand to your feet this morning. If you need to take a break, that's fine too. But 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to read verses 50 through 58 as we finish this chapter today. And uh, I want to read this and then pray to begin our study this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet... For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Verse 55, O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. Lord, it is so powerful. And God, these promises that we have read, Lord, may they impact and change our lives as Christians, as believers this morning. And Father God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would shape our hearts and speak to our hearts this morning. In your name I pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Well, guys, if you didn't sense that in my voice, hopefully you, you, you get it now. You guys should be excited about this passage, especially if you're a believer in Jesus Christ here this morning. We should be excited as we read this, pas- this passage. Now, as a pastor, I, I, I have done several funerals thus far in my calling. And this scripture in particular is one that I have read at the side of graves several times. And I can tell you that as I am there, with the reality of death there before me, this passage comforts my heart and excites me and gives me chills like no other when I read through it. Not chills of fear, but chills of excitement at the promises of God. He promises all who believe, all who believe in Christ, that this passage is going to come true one day in their lives. You know, there's nothing else that can fill us with hope like the Word of God. There's nothing in this world that has this kind of substance and promise for those of us who believe. And it's, in, it's incredible. This should make us uh, you know, have the chills of excitement as I was talking about. But as we've been going through this chapter together, we've seen several things so far. Paul has made several points. He's correcting the faulty teaching there in the, in the church at Corinth that there is no resurrection from the dead. There were several church leaders that were teaching that, or it, it appears that someone was teaching that in the church. Paul's addressing it, is addressing it directly. And he starts off there in verses 1 through 11 with the foundation of the resurrection, which is the gospel, by the way. 
that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and He was raised from the dead on the third day according to the Scriptures. Paul says, look, you guys even believe that. That's the Gospel. You believe it. And how can you say that the resurrection of the dead isn't true? It doesn't make sense. That's the common ground for all believers to stand on. So that's the foundation. But then Paul goes on and he gives the facts of the resurrection. The facts being that if Christ is raised from the dead, then, then, then He's the first fruits from the dead. Meaning, not only that He's the first in importance, but also that He's first in quality. Uh, he's a sample of the quality that is to come. In other words, the body that Jesus Christ received, His resurrection body, God transformed Him and made him into a new, uh, uh, gave Him a new body. That same body is going to be available for you and for me. And that should be exciting to us. That's the facts of the resurrection. Also, the realities of the resurrection body. Verses 35 through 49, Paul gave two analogies to help us explain. Look, it's not your zombie-like body that's going to be walking around in heaven, okay? It's not this cloud of dust and ashes that's going to be walking around in heaven. No, God is going to transform you. He's going to give you a new heavenly body that's fit for eternity. And then today we get to the last eight verses, and Paul is just kind of knocking it out of the park with this last little uh, part of the chapter where he's telling us about the final victory of believers, guys. This is the final victory. So uh, if you've ever watched Rocky, you know, the final countdown, you know, hey, the, all these great music, this is, it's in this chapter. I, I think it's inspired by this chapter. Well, maybe that's going too far. But anyways, in my heart it is, all right? I'm excited about this chapter this morning. So look at verse 50 with me once again. Where we read, again, Paul saying, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. So it's just a summary there. Paul's uh, summarizing what he's just been saying. Uh, he, that God is going to take care of making sure we have our resurrection body, and it will be fit for eternal life. Listen, guys, in other words, we know that this life isn't as good as it gets. Thank goodness for that. Now, I can run to the refrigerator in under 30 seconds or less. But if you ask me to run five miles, that'll take me a couple of hours, okay? Because I don't like to run. I'm not a runner. Some of you guys might be runners. But the, the point is, is that this body, man, it's, it's going downhill the older I get. But the good news is, is that this life is not as good as it gets. This flesh and blood body will die. But that is not the end. You guys know the Bible teaches the brevity of life. I'm not here trying to get you down this morning. I'm just telling you the facts. I'm teaching you the truth. I'm the messenger boy. Don't get mad at me, okay? The Bible teaches the brevity of life and the certainty of death. We've all heard the passages. Think about the psalm that says, Teach us, Lord, to number our days. What does that mean, number our days? Count how many days I've got? No. It means to realize that we're but a breath. Our life is but a vapor. And so, yes, we're to enjoy that life because God has given it to us. He's given us creation and we enjoy it. But we also realize one day we will stand before Him. That one day we will stand before our Maker and we're going to give an account for what we did each day of our lives. That's what that passage means. Also, the Bible teaches us that all flesh is as grass. Man, my yard at home, I'll tell you what, it looks beautiful when the spring rains hit. 
And I, I, I mow it, you know, and, and get it looking real nice. But there towards about August, after it hasn't rained for a couple of months, that grass turns yellow and it dies, doesn't it? it it's no longer pretty. It's here today, but it's gone tomorrow. The Bible says, hey, your life as a human being, it's kind of like the grass. It looks good for a while. It's vibrant and green for a while, but pretty soon it dries out and it begins to die. You're here today. You're gone the next. So that is also why, you guys, listen, the Bible teaches us about the importance of being right with God today. Today is the day of salvation, the Bible says. Seek the Lord while he may be found, the Bible says. And it also says, call upon the Lord Jesus and be saved. Those are things that are exhortations for today. Now, isn't it interesting how all of life, whether we admit this or not, it's kind of governed by the limitation of death? What do we see in the cemeteries, guys? We see headstones. And on those headstones, we see two dates. But guess what is in between those dates? A dash. That dash represents your life. That dash is what, uh, uh, is that little line is what describes your and I life. It's a dash between two dates. Paul has spent this entire chapter in 15 here telling us that death, though, is not the final victory. That the final victory comes to those who believe in Christ Jesus. That he gives us life after the grave. And now Paul is going to tell us that not everyone is going to experience death. And that is interesting. That should fill us with excitement. This is big, guys. You know, to realize that not everybody here is, is necessarily going to die. That's what Paul is saying. And that can fill us with an excitement and a hope. Now, why is that? Because this passage right here that we're about to read, verse 51, is talking, it's describing something that some believers are going to experience. And it might be you. It might be me. Check it out. Behold, I tell you a mystery, Paul says. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In other words, we're not all going to die, but we are all going to be transformed. Verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. Let's pause right here. These verses that we've just read, guys, this is one of the most important passages in the New Testament about the event known as the rapture. Maybe you've heard of it. I certainly hope that you have. Now, Many people have not heard of the rapture, and that's because most churches do not teach about the rapture today. Because, it is, uh, uh, because there's not a lot of uh, verses dedicated to it in the New Testament, and because it is a little bit controversial, meaning that a lot of believers have different positions on it, hey, a lot of churches just decide, hey, there's no way we can uh, be sure about this, so we're not going to teach it. But listen, that is not what we do at Calvary Chapel, okay? That is not what your pastor has for you today. Me, as your pastor, I'm like, dude, this is in the Bible. I need to teach this to you guys because you need to know it. I want you, even if you don't believe it, you need to know that it's in the Bible. And you need to allow it to affect and change your lives. I don't want to stand before God someday and be like, yeah, Lord, I didn't give him the whole counsel of God, you know? I don't want to be that pastor. I want to be the pastor that's like, good job, Phil. You told them about it. Whether they believed you or not, you told them. So here it is, guys. I'm going to lay this out for you today. 
If you have not heard of the doctrine of the rapture, I want to walk you through a couple of things very briefly to help us to understand it a little bit better. First of all, the doctrine of the rapture is not it's not found in the Old Testament, okay? It does not find its roots in the Old Testament. This is a New Testament doctrine. A lot of people get confused about that. If you ever hear a pastor teaching, trying to prove the rapture from the Old Testament, that's, that's not where it comes from, okay? It's, it's not going to be compatible. It's a New Testament doctrine, first of all. What do I mean by that? Well, Jesus is the one that referred to the doctrine of the rapture. He's the one that first mentioned it in John chapter 14. So if you've got your Bibles, open them to John chapter 14 this morning. I like it when you guys use your own Bibles because that means you can highlight and underline and, 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 and you know exactly where these passages are. If you, do, if you uh, didn't bring your Bible, well, I'm going to put it on the screen for you today. Let's read John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. Jesus speaking here says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And then here's where he goes into it. Verse 2, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That's the key phrase. If you want to underline it, please go ahead and do that. He says, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Notice the intent of Jesus' teaching. He is saying, I am going to come again Not to set up my kingdom on the earth in the second coming, but rather I'm coming again to take you to my Father's house. Now, the key word is receive. That word receive in the Greek language is paralambano. Everybody say paralambano. Isn't that a cool word? I just like to say it, paralambano. But that word, it just means simply to take. To take along or to take with. That's all it means. You can write that in the margin of your Bible. Receive, to take, to take along. That's what the word means. Now, how do we know that Jesus is talking to the church about the event known as the rapture here? Well, because there's two separate events that are clearly taught in Scripture. One is Jesus Christ coming to take the church, His disciples, to be with Him in His Father's house. But then there's also clearly taught that Jesus is coming again to what? To set up the kingdom on earth, the second coming. Those are two totally separate events. Jesus is not talking about coming to the earth to set up his kingdom in this passage. And we know he never came to take his disciples. So who's he talking about? He's talking about the church that they founded, guys. He never came for the disciples, so we know he's prophesying of a future event in which he would come to take the believers who would go to be with him. Now, Paul received further revelation about the rapture in his uh, discipleship with the Lord Jesus. In the time that he spent with the Lord, the Lord revealed to Paul, the, the apostle, further what was going on with that. And so if you'll turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we'll look at a passage that Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica about this event called the rapture. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Again, I, I love it if you guys would turn there in your Bibles. One of the things you'll learn about being at Calvary Chapel is 
Man, we encourage you to bring your Bibles. We love you guys to have your Bibles with you when we study, because this is what it's all about. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. Paul says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others do, as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Verse 15, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend with the shout from heaven, or will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Let me read verse 18 one more time. Because yes, this is part of Paul's doctrine of the rapture. And a lot of people forget that. He says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. So important that we see that as part of the doctrine of the rapture. And I'll explain to you in a why in a minute. Now, uh, so Paul is writing this passage to the church in Thessalonica, which he planted. And he spent about three weeks with them or so, a few weeks with them. And he explained a lot of the end times events. But what happened is the church was afraid that they had missed this rapture event, this coming of the Lord for the church. Why? Because some of their believers, in the time that Paul planted the church and left, they passed away. They died. And because they died, they thought, oh no, man, our brother or sister, they they died. We've buried them. Now they're going to miss this event that Paul had taught us about. And Paul says, no, no, let me tell you guys something. They're actually going to precede you. Their bodies are going to be resurrected from the grave. And then those who are alive and remain are going to be caught up together with the Lord in the air, to meet the Lord. Now, circle the words caught up in verse 17, if if you're one that writes in your Bible. That word caught up in the Greek language, that is one word, harpazo. You guys want to try that one? Harpazo. Let me hear you. Harpazo, yes. That word harpazo, it also means to be taken away, to be seized or snatched away, okay? That's what that word means in the Greek. Harpazo, take away. Remember what received was? Paralambano, same thing. Jesus used it. Very interesting there. But when the Bible was translated into Latin, that Greek word, harpazo, was translated into the Latin word, raptos. And that is where, you guessed it, we get the English word for which this doctrine is named, rapture. So somebody might come to you and say, hey, that word rapture is not even in the Bible. And you could say, oh yeah, it is. It's in the Latin Bible. (laughs) Because that's that's the version that that is in. The Vulgate or the Vulgate, however you want to say it. It's in the Latin Bible, the word raptos, and that's where we get the name for this doctrine. Now, there are five main positions when it comes to the timing of the rapture. And again, this is where uh, things can get a little complicated, okay? Different believers are going to hold to a different position. What we got to realize, guys, is that's okay, okay? We 
don't have to divide over this. This is one of those issues. This is a non-essential issue in Scripture. And if you hold to a different position, that's great. Guess what? There's godly men and women on different positions of this issue, and that's awesome. Praise the Lord. All I ask, and I'll talk about this in a second, is that you've arrived at your conclusions honestly, and you've done the research and put the time in for yourself, and that you use the Bible as your primary source to get there. Okay? Now, Let's go over these really quickly. The five main positions of the rapture. First of all, you've got your post-tribulation rapture. They hold that the rapture occurs as part of the second coming of Christ at the end of the seven-year tribulation. Okay, those that hold to this are usually amillennialists and post-millennialists. Uh, and, and, and a lot of you know, folks in the Reformed tradition will hold to a post-tribulation rapture. In fact, this is probably the most popular tradition that's out there, or the most popular view that's out there. But for them, the difficulty comes in explaining, you see, because they have to explain how in the world does the church go through the whole tribulation, and then at the end of it, at the end of the seven-year tribulation, the church is raptured, we're taken up in the air, we transformed in the air because Christ is coming back to the earth, and we come straight back down. And so when does the Bema Seat judgment occur? When are the rewards uh, given out? And all of those sorts of things. And that's where they kind of have some trouble. And also differentiating and distinguishing between the, the, the doctrine that Jesus taught in John chapter 14. Remember? He said, I'm coming to take you to my Father's house. That's different than Jesus coming to set up his kingdom on earth. So they have, that, that's where the difficulty is for a post-tribulation uh, view. Now, I am by no means an expert on that, and I don't want to speak for you if you hold to that view. I'm sure you can enlighten me on some of those things, uh, but I have read a little bit about it, and that's what I understand uh, to be true about the post-tribulation rapture stance. Now, there's also the mid-tribulation rapture. This, this view says that the rapture occurs in the middle of the seven-year tribulation period. Now, this is probably the least popular view. There are not very many people that hold to this, and here's why. It's a little bit difficult to explain how no man can know the day or the hour that Jesus Christ returns to the earth if you have a countdown. Because if the rapture occurs in the mid part of the tribulation, well, then you know you've got to count 1,260 days or three and a half years, and you know the day, and you could probably discern you know, the hour that Jesus Christ is going to return to the earth. And so that's the the difficulty there with that one, the mid-tribulation rapture. Then you've got the partial rapture view. And this view says that only Christians who are specially qualified will be raptured, okay? Only those that are, you know, well, that meet the qualifications of whoever says what they are because they differ in different camps, okay? But this this kind of, the difficulty with this view is it kind of gives way a little bit to legalism. You could see how that would happen, you know? Well, if you're not really living a holy life, you're going to miss out on the rapture. Okay, that's not really necessarily what I, I think the scriptures teach is that the whole church, you know, if you study First Thessalonians chapter 4 again, verses 13 to 18, Paul makes it pretty clear that everybody is going to be caught up to be with the Lord, okay? Now, the other view is the pre-wrath rapture. And that view says that the rapture will occur before the seven bowl judgments of Revelation. Uh, you, in, in the book of Revelation, starting in chapter 6, it starts off with, the seal judgments, then you've got the trumpet judgments, and then in chapter 16 of, of Revelation, you've got the uh, bowl judgments, or the vials. 
And in chapter 16, verse 1, it says that those bold judgments are the wrath of God being poured out on the earth. And so the pre-wrath people, they say, well, God hasn't destined his people for wrath, so we're going to go through the tribulation all the way up to the point where God pours out his wrath, and then the church is going to be taken out. But listen, here's, my, uh, uh, here, here's the, the thing that they have to defend is, how do you know um, that the seal judgments and the trumpet judgment aren't God's wrath on a sin, sinful world as well? Because they're also being initiated in heaven, and God is the one who's sending those. So it, it's a little bit difficult to defend that, uh, in my opinion. But the last one there... Um, and, oh, whoops, let me go back. This is my favorite, if you didn't know, okay? I'm biased, okay? I, I, I'm sorry, I have to admit it, but the pre-tribulation rapture, okay? This is where I stand, uh, and, and uh, this view says that the rapture of the church occurs more than seven years before the second coming of Christ, It's called pre-tribulational because it is predicted to happen before the end time troubles of the book of Revelation that start in chapter 6, okay? It's predicted before those end time troubles begin. So uh, that's where I I land. Uh, But again, as I've shared before, I think I I told you guys this already, Uh, I've come to this stance, I've come to this view, after studying lots of the scripture passages uh, throughout the entire Bible. Okay, it's not just, you know, I, do, I don't just pick a few. Okay, you read through all the scriptures, and, and, and then you, you study this, and you've got to use the Bible as the primary source. Now, I want to encourage you guys to conduct research. Don't just take my word for this stuff. Okay, you guys that are interested in this, get into the Word. Get into the Word. I encourage you to conduct your research, but do it with fairness. Use the Bible as your primary source. Don't go to a, a man and, and just base everything on what a man says. Go to the Word and use the Word of God to guide you as you come to a conclusion for yourself about your stance, about your view of the rapture. Now, as I said, a lot of churches don't teach this because they think, oh, it's, 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 it's really unknowable. It's just something that causes division. It doesn't have to cause division, guys. It doesn't have to cause division. I, I respect your view, and I hope that you respect mine, and we love each other, and we can continue to serve the Lord together. But here's the thing. Hopefully, whatever conclusion you come to is life-changing because how, how you live your life now tells me what you believe about the end of your life. And so hopefully, we're all going to be living in such a way that we believe, wow, Jesus could come any moment, okay? Any moment. And so I want to be ready now. I want to be ready for that now in case he does. Listen, the Bible doesn't uh, say that there's anything left in the prophetic timeline that has to happen before Christ returns. It's the doctrine of imminency. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in a second too, but... um, I just want to end, end this little part of my message by saying this. Again, there are solid brothers and sisters in the Lord who hold to some of these other views. And I want you guys to know I respect their view. I, I believe that every Christian needs to search the scriptures and, and, and on their own come to their own conclusion, not just take someone else's word for it. So do that. So do that, guys. I encourage you to do it 100%. Uh, and then the last thing I want to say about this, though, is that it is incorrect to say that the pre-tribulation rapture theory originated 
or was popularized in the 18th century. Okay, that's not a sound argument. A lot of people are making that argument. In fact, if you go to Wikipedia, Wikipedia says this about the pre-tribulation rapture. It says, the pre-tribulation rapture theology originated in the 18th century with the Puritan preachers increase in Cotton Mather. Love those names, by the way. Increase in Cotton. And, and it was popularized extensively in the 1830s by John Nelson Darby and the Plymouth Brethren. That's what Wikipedia tells you. Guess what, guys? That is not entirely correct, okay? And it's not, a, it's not sound argument to make your uh, stand on that statement. Uh, in fact, if you are a serious student of the Word, you have to recognize that the New Testament church really did live with an expectant hope that Christ would come for them in their own lifetimes. We just read it, guys, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul says, not all of you are going to die. Some of you are going to be transformed in a twinkling of an eye. So he told them, guys, to be ready. And guess what? That doesn't change today. Just because it happened doesn't take away the power of that teaching. Just because it didn't happen then doesn't mean that it's not powerful for us today is what I'm trying to say. So the New Testament does teach that the catching up, the taking away to the Father's house, the rapture, it can happen at any moment. Okay, there's no indication in the scriptures that there's a future prophecy that yet has to be fulfilled. There's nothing left. And so at any moment, it's called the doctrine of imminency, the, bride, or the, the, the bridegroom could come for his bride, which is us, the church. Now, Paul told, uh, and, and to back that up really quickly, the early church fathers also believed and confirmed the pre-tribulation rapture view, and that was way before John Nelson Darby, okay? Irenaeus, Polycarp, Ignatius, some of these fathers, they wrote about the imminency of Christ coming for his church, okay? So it's, it's not just me that's saying that. There's history that backs this up. Now, Paul told believers in Thessalonica to comfort one another with these words. Let me ask you a question. Would it be comforting to you this morning, if I told you guys, hey guys, Jesus is coming to take us up from the earth. Um, that's the good news. But the bad news is you got to go through some really crazy stuff first. In fact, demons are going to be coming for you. Demons are coming for you. Uh, the Antichrist is going to be coming for you. And he is, if he gets his hands on you, he's going to chop you up. He's going to cut your head off. Uh, so stock up. Get ammunition, get guns, get water. By the way, you'll never have enough water, but get, get all that stuff anyways, and try to get ready for the end. That would not be comforting. That would not be comforting in the slightest. But listen, Paul the Apostle said, comfort one another with these words. And, and Peter wrote, and he said that God has not destined his people for wrath. We've not been destined for judgment and so, guys, what we do is we take all of that together and we realize, okay, the comfort comes in knowing that God has not destined us to face his judgment upon a sin-filled world, but that he does have a plan, indeed, to come for his church, to take us, to, to receive us to his Father's house, and that we, there in heaven, while the seven years of tribulation is happening here on the earth, he will be uh, feasting, celebrating the marriage supper of the Lamb, I just did a wedding yesterday. I told somebody afterwards, my favorite part as a pastor, whenever I do a wedding, I don't really, I mean, I, I glance at the bride when she comes down 
you know, when she comes out. But my favorite part is to watch the groom. You know why? Oh, man, you should just see the grooms, man. They start smiling. They start crying, some of them. They start shaking, you know. And, and why? Because they're so excited to see their bride. She's coming. And, man, it's a, it's a special moment. And think about Jesus. Jesus is waiting in heaven for that moment when he gets to take the church to come and to be with him. And you guys, and, and think about that moment. It's going to be so special for him and for us. So coming back to the passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul's talking there in verses 51 through 53. Real quick, I just want to look at a few things in the, those verses again. Paul says, not all will sleep. But all will be changed. That means you're going to be made different. God's going to transform you. He's going to fit your body for the eternal experience. He says this is going to happen in a moment. In a twinkling of an eye. Now that word moment in Greek is atomos. And it's referring to an atom. In Greek thought, an atom was the smallest unit of time available to them. And so Paul is saying in the, very, in the twinkling of an eye, the time it takes for you to blink, this is going to happen. And he says that the event is going to be signaled by a trumpet. Now that is not a reference to the seventh trumpet in the book of Revelation. Okay, this is a unique trumpet. It's also called the trumpet of God. And it's unique to the coming of Christ for his bride. And it's, it's related to the, the trumpets in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the children of Israel, they had a silver trumpet. And when that silver trumpet was sounded, it was the call for everybody to gather, and, and, and they knew that there was going to be either an announcement or there was, there was some purpose that that trumpet was being called. And so that's kind of the idea. This New Testament trumpet here is called the trumpet of God, and God's going to sound it. It's unique to the coming of Christ for his bride. Now, after mentioning the taking away of believers who are alive when Christ comes for the church, Paul continues in verse 54. He says, So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? I want to pause right here for a second. Paul is literally mocking death here in this passage. If you've ever seen a little kid on a playground, you know, playing tag, and someone's trying to get them and they outrun them, what do they do? They, they grab their ears and they stick their tongue out and they go, nah, 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 nah. You know, that's what Paul's doing in this passage. He is literally mocking death. I love it. And I can just hear it, you know. Na, 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 hey, 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 goodbye. You know, I mean, he's just singing a victory song here over death. He's just saying, man, you, you've got nothing on me. You guys remember when Jesus called Lazarus forth from the grave? Do you realize that if Jesus would not have used Lazarus' name, the entire cemetery would have raised? If he would have just said, hey, come forth, it would have been like, you know, and all these bodies come walking out, you know. But he said Lazarus, and so just one. But that's the power of our Lord, the power of God's. Guys, remember that story when you drive by a cemetery. The next time that you drive by a cemetery, look over and think, one day, all of those graves are going to be empty. Because that is the promise of God. Verse 56, the sting of death is sin, the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then, 
continuing there, verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, this is the motivation, this is the application here. My beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Guys, verse 58 is your life plan. That dash between the dates that represents your life, hey, you need a life plan. What are you living for? What is the priorities in your life? And, and that, that verse right there tells us, oh man, one of, the, the priority of my life needs to be Jesus Christ. Living and serving him is labor that is not in vain. Everything else, the book of Ecclesiastes tells me, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It's all emptiness. It's all vain. Except for your labor that is done in the Lord. That is not in vain, the scriptures tell us. So, in conclusion this morning, I want to tell you guys that the resurrection of believers is not some pipe dream that someone got while they were hallucinating after eating some mushrooms or something like that, okay? The rapture is not some pipe dream that Paul came up with on his own while he was out in the desert. But rather, he tells us, no, Jesus Christ lived. He died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and He rose again from the grave according to the Scriptures with a new resurrection body. This is real, church. This is going to happen. And it's going to happen, hopefully, in my lifetime. But listen, let me ask you a question today. When you are resurrected, will you be resurrected to eternal life? Or will you be resurrected to the second death? If you have faith in Jesus, then you have hope. But if you are not a believer here today, then you have no hope. You don't have this kind of hope because the Bible tells us that Jesus will resurrect, that God will resurrect all humans. All human life will stand before Him. If you reject Jesus and you are not saved, before you die in this lifetime that God has given you, then you will be resurrected to judgment for your sins and you will face eternity in hell. The Bible calls that the second death. Now, some of you might have heard that and thought, man, that sounds harsh. And guess what? It does sound harsh. Some of you might have heard that and say, how can you stand up there and just say that today? I'll tell you how I can stand up here and say that today. Because God loves you. And He wants you to know the truth. And because God loves you, I love you. And somebody's got to tell you the truth. Somebody has to speak truth. Don't get angry with me. I'm just a messenger boy. Your problem is with God. It's not with me. But the truth of the matter is that all will die and all will, well, not all will die. We know that some won't. Paul, says, Paul said that. But those of us that uh, aren't raptured, we will all stand before the Lord. Well, that didn't make sense either. Let me just put it this way. We're all going to stand before the Lord. Believers or none. We will all stand before our maker. And so I tell you that today because I love you, because God loves you, and he wants you to know the truth. He wants you to hear that. So if you're a believer today, 
then what we have studied should motivate you today to live in faithful, steady service to God. Maybe you need to reprioritize life. If you're a non-believer today, then you need to know this. Paul says, this is not a pipe dream. Jesus lived and he died on a cross for your sins. He faced God's wrath on your behalf to take your place so that if you, believing and trusting in him, would receive him as Savior, God can treat you as if you never sinned because Jesus took your sin away from you. Jesus not only lived and died, but he was also physically buried in a tomb. He was buried in an actual tomb. His body was laid to rest, but he didn't stay dead. The scriptures tell us that on the third day, Jesus rose again. He overcame death. He was raised from the dead and given a new resurrection body. And you, my friend, will be resurrected as well. Some to eternal life and everlasting glory, and some of you to judgment and eternal damnation, separated from God forever. It's your choice today. Today is the day of salvation. The Bible says today is the day that you need to get right with God. Let's pray.